From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. President Biden goes to Selma, Alabama to call again for the passage of federal voting legislation while giving at least some details this week of his forthcoming budget proposal. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with the Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues on the editorial board, Colin Levy and Kate Batchelder-Odell. Welcome to you both. On Sunday, the president was in Selma, Alabama to commemorate the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. That was the police brutality against a civil rights march in 1965 for the freedom to vote, which was met with police tear gas and batons. President Biden had some remarks about that anniversary, but he also couldn't help making it into a political moment, talking about everything from the price of insulin to his infrastructure law to Democratic plans to federalize voting with a couple of bills in Congress. Listen to this. I still picture the troopers with their batons and wands and whips. A promise that declares we're all created and deserve to be treated equally. Two weeks later, they marched to Montgomery with Dr. King and an even bigger coalition of people from different races and faiths. Five months later, the Voting Rights Act was signed into law five months later. But as I come here in commemoration, not for show, Selma is a reckoning. The right to vote, the right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. And this fundamental right remains under assault. The conservative Supreme Court has gutted the Voting Rights Act over the years. Since the 2020 election, a wave of states and dozens, dozens of anti-voting laws fueled by the big lie and the election deniers now elected to office. Colin, President Biden did not use the phrase Jim Crow 2.0. That was the phrase he used in Georgia last year, talking about these voting laws that some states were passing at the time. But beyond that, it seems to me that that was the extent of the nuance here in the president's remarks in Selma. Yeah, I think so, Kyle. I mean, look, the memories of Selma are really important to America's memory and reckoning with race. And we should be commemorating these moments. I think that's very important. But turning them into immediate political attacks is just really unfortunate here. President Biden immediately took the opportunity in his speech to lay all the racial justice issues at the feet of the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, that's obviously <laughs> blaming everything on the Supreme Court is very popular with progressives and with the left right now. But to say that the Supreme Court justices have gutted the Voting Rights Act over the years, I think that's it's unfortunate. It's not accurate, by the way, and it's deeply misleading. And I think it intentionally inflames racial tensions here. He's also said that since 2020, that a lot of states have passed anti-voting laws. And Kamala Harris has also been out there saying that America was sort of facing a new assault on the freedom to vote and that extremists are trying to dismantle these voting protections that generations of civil rights leaders and advocates fought to win. And I think we really need to ramp down the rhetoric here and look a little bit more carefully at what the court has done and what states have done and not just turn it into a political firestorm. When President Biden criticizes the Supreme Court for gutting the Voting Rights Act, as he says, he didn't specifically cite one decision, but it seems to me that he's talking about a 2013 case called Shelby County versus Holder. 
And it might be useful just to remind people the actual facts of that case. So this involved one section of the Voting Rights Act that required certain states and localities to get preclearance, usually from the Justice Department, before they changed their voting laws. I think it's fair to say that that section of the law, which was in place for about a generation, helped to break Jim Crow in the South. The problem that the court saw in 2013 is that Congress kept continually extending it. The last expiration date was 2031. And yet the states that it applied to were set by this formula that was put in place in 1975 uh, and not updated substantially since. So part of what the Supreme Court said in its decision, this is from the majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, it says Congress did not use the record it compiled to shape a coverage formula grounded in current conditions. It instead reenacted a formula based on 40-year-old facts having no logical relation to the present day. And another thing that Chief Justice Roberts did in this opinion was to check out the data, voter registration, voter turnout data in some of these states. And so this is another piece of his opinion. He says Census Bureau data from the most recent election indicate that African-American voter turnout exceeded white voter turnout in five of the six states originally covered by Section 5, which was the preclearance section with a gap in the sixth state of less than one half of 1%. And so, Kate, I just think that there's a misunderstanding here about what the Shelby County decision did. It left most of the Voting Rights Act in place. It struck down the coverage formula for this preclearance section, though the Supreme Court also said explicitly that Congress was able, if it wanted to, to create a new coverage formula. The thrust of the ruling was just that you can't keep treating all of these states in the year 2013, like it's still 1970. Roberts was right to describe preclearance as an extraordinary measure to address an extraordinary problem. And the core question of the case was, has progress been made on that front? And I think all of your the data you're listening from the Census Bureau suggests that it is. And on the point about the coverage formula, Roberts also pointed out that the formula would reference literacy tests and other practices that have been banned nationwide for over 40 years at the time. So there were real infirmities with that preclearance formula. And now again, and also Shelby doesn't give states license to do whatever they want. The changes that they make are still subject to litigation. And we see that in all sorts of voting laws that are passed, but it merely changes the pre-clearance requirement for anything that they do. So I think that there's just been so much uh, misinformation about that decision and the questions that it raised. And it really is disappointing to see, to Colin's point on the anniversary of Selma, an episode that really is important to keep in our national memory, abused for these ends. And to see no change in Biden's posture, really from Jim Crow 2.0, I understand he tamped down the rhetoric a little bit, but to see no end to that and to continue to play divisive politics on this is just disappointing. And no acknowledgement that the data seems to be proving him incorrect. I mean, President Biden has a long record of warning that voter ID laws are an attempt to suppress minority voters. There's a long history of research that says that does not appear to be the case. There's a 2021 study that found no negative effect on registration or turnout overall or for any group defined by race gender, age, or party affiliation. And that helps explain why, according to a Gallup survey last year, 77% of people of color support these kinds of laws, voter ID laws. 
And I would say that the same thing is now playing out with regard to some of these state laws that President Biden has explicitly attacked. There's a survey by the University of Georgia after the 2022 elections, a post-election survey asking people about their personal experience voting in Georgia. 72.6% of black residents said it was excellent. That compares with 72.7% of white residents. 0% of black residents said they had a poor voting experience in 2022. That that compares to 0.9% of white residents. I think those are broadly comparable figures, Colin. And I think they should lead an open-minded observer to the conclusion that a lot of the rhetoric that you heard from President Biden and Democrats around these laws when they were being passed in 2021 and 2022 was really overheated and overhyped. And instead, it seems to me that we are just getting more of the same from President Biden. No, I think that's true for sure. I mean, look, Again, as you said, the Voting Rights Act was designed to create federal guardrails around states that were looking for ways to suppress minority influence in elections in the years after Jim Crow. And that's why the states were required to get the preclearance. And that's why eventually the hope was that states wouldn't need that anymore. And as we look at these statistics, some of the ones that you mentioned, I think we do need to celebrate in some ways when things do get better. That doesn't mean everything's perfect. But we do need to look honestly at the statistics and say, look, some of the things that the Voting Rights Act was created to address, some of the voting practices that were discriminating by race, have gone away or diminished, and we need to adjust our politics around it and focus on the places where we can improve our practices. The last thought I would add on this point is that it seems to me President Biden in his speech is attacking what Democrats now call the big lie from President Trump, which is that the 2020 election was stolen. But it seems to me that we almost have parallel false narratives here around voting. On the one side, we have President Trump's claims that American elections are rife with fraud and that the 2020 election was stolen. Who knows what other elections are stolen? I don't think the evidence bears that out. I think in general, American elections are pretty clean, which is not to say that there aren't people who are doing things wrong that ought to be caught and prosecuted, but it seems not to be happening at the scale where it really affects election results, unless you have a case where there's a very close election and something seriously that's gone wrong occasionally that happens. There was a House race in North Carolina a few years ago that was thrown out because of ballot collection by a Republican consultant, and that race was eventually rerun. And again, that's not to say that you should allow those kinds of practices, because I don't think you should. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, as they say. But on the other side, you almost have a parallel argument where, in Biden's mind, it's not fraud that's rife, it's voter suppression that's rife. And we don't really have fair elections in the United States. And I think one of these things gets called out, Kate, by the media pretty often, which is Trump's false claims. But I certainly think there's a lot more pushback due on the narrative that Biden is also selling. Yeah. And Kyle, that's also why it's so disappointing, because there's such an opening here for presidential leadership on a really important subject, which is that everyone be confident in the results of our elections, even when they don't like the outcome or lose. That Georgia poll that you just mentioned reported that 89.7% of voters felt confident in the elections process. Now, that's probably as high as maybe you could hope Americans to be, but you still would like it to be closer to 100%. And to your point, 
it's really a bifurcating on both the left and right who are losing confidence in elections. But to see a result like this in Georgia, where you see 95% of people saying they waited less than 30 minutes, which is another important issue, making sure everybody has access to the polls. When you have a smooth process like this, it was an opportunity to say, look, this ad turned out to be a net improvement in how elections are run and change course on the Jim Crow stuff. I mean, we would love to see the rest of the country have results like this, these high levels of confidence, these quick votings, these other good outcomes. And instead, we've seen no real movement in a lot of states, Arizona comes to mind, to clean up their election processes so they produce decisive results quickly. So that is just, again, a regrettable missed opportunity for presidential leadership where it's sorely needed. Hang tight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Potomac Watch from The Wall Street Journal. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Also this week, the world is waiting on President Biden's budget proposal for fiscal 2024. He is expected to announce it on Thursday. And it's worth pointing out that even when you have uniparty control in Washington, presidential budgets are generally greeted as dead on arrival because Congress has its own priorities. And here's a situation where you have a House in Republican hands. So maybe this Biden budget is double dead. But Kate, it's still useful as a measure of presidential priorities. And to the extent that the president can push members of his party in Congress on certain issues that are important to him, it can certainly change the debate, I think. So you're an experienced budget watcher in Washington. What are you looking for when Biden's budget comes out? And what do we know so far? Yeah, Kyle, uh, budget release is the high holidays for some of us. And we're expecting the president to get his out this week. We're starting to see some initial leaks on some of the highlights one of which is Biden is fogging this plan that he says will save Medicare. In reality, from the high-level details that are available, it's really a large tax increase, and it would do so by increasing the Medicare surtax on investment income. And so what it aims to do there, it's 3.8% now. It aims to both broaden the base and reach its tentacles into other types of businesses that don't aren't currently subject to it, capture more income, and also raise the rate to 5%. Now, the president has long said that he doesn't want to raise taxes on anyone earning $400,000. So since it hits at around 250K for married people filing jointly, it looks like he'd have to create a new tax bracket and put a surcharge on a surcharge. This is a really large tax increase on capital gains. It was really what it is. You also, in this plan, basically he wants to continue to broaden his scheme from the Inflation Reduction Act to price control new drugs and expand his tentacles into new classes of drugs and create more rules, even in commercial markets on list prices and what can be charged for drugs. And then he says, you know, we're going to use all of this 
money to save Medicare. First of all, it's early days, but the math on this looks completely out of proportion. And the Biden administration is also proposing some new lower costs for Medicare beneficiaries, which means, you know, they're not really reforming how the program works. So I think this is mostly a political smokescreen here. But broadly on the rest of the budget, I think it's always a good check on whether the president has any new ideas. I think we're going to see a lot of the same kind of things rolled out. We're going to we want to spend more on tax credits for children or Head Start, be large domestic increases. I think we're going to see not even a commensurate for inflation increase in the Pentagon budget, a continuation there of our 3% of GDP spending that we've been at and climbing down on for some time. So I don't expect much here. And a lot of what we're seeing so far looks like warmed over ideas that they've been trying, particularly those price controls just clawing in more drugs. Let me pick up on the Medicare fact sheet that the White House has put out this morning. And as Kate says, this is a tax increase on earned and unearned income above $400,000 from 3.8% to 5%. And it notes that the most recent Medicare trustees report projects that the hospital insurance trust fund is going to go insolvent by 2028. So there is definitely some action needed on that. But Colin, I wonder if this is giving an opening for Republican candidates who want to attack this as a tax increase. And I would say pair it with what's probably coming on Social Security. The Social Security Trust Fund, if my memory serves right, that one is scheduled to go insolvent by something like 2034. And during the 2020 campaign, President Biden had another proposal. It would have applied the 12.4 percent Social Security tax which is currently capped, it comes off at a certain amount of income, he would have applied that 12.4% to all income over $400,000 with no cap. And so you combine those figures, if President Biden is still going, I think certainly he can be held responsible for endorsing that in the 2020 campaign, but you get something like, you know, an an additional 13 or 14% tax on high earners. Colin, I can't only imagine that that would have some effect on incentives in the economy. All right, for sure, Kyle. I mean, and yes, as you said, I think there is an opportunity for Republicans here. You talking about all of these various kinds of insolvency looming. And is there is anyone talking about cutting spending? We've got another soak the rich plan here from President Biden. Obviously, that's very popular with the progressive base. You know, he came into office being quite clear that he would raise taxes. Now he's ready to do it again. And of course, He says he's going to raise taxes on billionaires. And of course, he says he's not going to raise taxes on the middle class because, I mean, guess what? I mean, here's a great secret about American taxpayers. The vast majority of them consider themselves middle class, whether they are or not. So, okay, so Biden says people making less than 400,000 a year aren't going to pay any more in income tax. Fine. But there's a rather large gap between $400,000 and a billion. And plenty of the taxpayers in that gap are small business owners and people who create jobs in their communities. So I think this is certainly a good issue for Republicans to take on. And I think the American people instinctively understand, especially when you start dealing with big pieces like Medicare and Social Security, that once you take the basic guardrails off for what percentage people are paying and make those progressive taxes, that there's really no end to where that can go. Kate, the other thing that strikes me as interesting about this plan by President Biden for Medicare is just that the debate in the GOP seems to be whether those entitlement programs, for political reasons, need to be ruled out for any changes. And I guess just to double down on what I was saying earlier, it seems like there's an opportunity 
for some Republican candidate here who can provide another option for how to keep those trust funds solvent. If the Biden plan is an enormous tax increase on small business owners and upstanding members of communities all across America who are earning good paychecks, granted, and the Republican plan is some sort of minor changes you know, like raising the retirement age by a year in 2050, I am not so certain which of those plans would be more likely to be favored by the public. And Kate, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, well, I first want to underscore Colin's point that there's no end to this. I mean, we would be looking under this plan under at tax rates above 50% in states run by Democrats. And we're talking about going back to confiscatory tax rates. And the Obamacare surcharge was pitched as, well, it's just going to be this tiny little nick on people who are really rich. And the brackets were never indexed for inflation. So it continues to take in people lower and lower on the income scale. And again, now we're seeing they're just going to ratchet it up further to try to get more people into it and make the rate higher. So this is a real tax ratchet. And it's certainly not the end. Joe Biden would still like to raise corporate taxes at least to 28%. And there's even been discussion of things like taxing unrealized capital gains before you cash out. So this is the beginning, I think, of of some really ferocious tax creases that we can expect. On the GOP, I just would quickly add, they've got a thin House majority. I think they need to spend some time being thoughtful on what changes they want to propose. I don't think that so far they've been able to add much substance on this front, and it's a risk right now to try to talk about this and voters end up scared because there's no real agreement on what the ideas are or how they're going to do it. I do think there's plenty of room for the proposal you described where you do something modest and over a long period of time, but they need to use this time in their thin majority to start to figure out what they plan to tell the country about this in 2024. Because just saying, no, we're not going to cut it like Joe Biden says, I don't think is a sufficient political argument. Thank you, Kate and Colin. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.